If you have a Bible tonight, let's open up to Psalm chapter 14. And as we study tonight's psalm, we'll see that God's people are miserably mistreated by the wicked. I mean, just crazy things that happen to us is God's people all around the world. We're going to see in verse 4 that it's so bad that it's described as wicked people eating God's people as if they were eating bread. And so you go through hard times. I mean, think about that. Eating people, whatever, beating people, mistreating people. Uh, And sometimes life is like that, right? On this side of time, uh, there are many injustices around the world. So much suffering, even among the saints. But but here's the thing, and I don't know what's going to happen in your life, you guys. I don't know what you're going to be hit with, uh, what's going to happen to your children, to your loved ones. Uh, Life has a way of just hitting us so hard. Whatever it is that you're going to face in life, we need to be encouraged by our psalm tonight. Don't be discouraged because we're going to see today that, you know, God will work. It's only a season. This too will pass. You know, the background to the psalm, we're not really sure about. Uh, it could be something like David on the run from Saul. But um, we're reminded in the end this, that God is with his people. He will defend us. He is our refuge. He has saved us. He will always save us. And therefore, we have, no matter what we're going through, reason to rejoice and be glad. You know, it's interesting. The truths studied in this psalm are so important that it's pretty much repeated verbatim in Psalm 53. Uh, probably a different music, but the same message. And what that tells me is that this is very important to God. And so uh, we read in Psalm 14. Notice what we read in verse 1. It's a Psalm of David. To the chief musician, the the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. And so we begin with the fool, and the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What a sad statement that is, isn't it? You know, we're living in a world today where uh, atheism is all around us. Uh, I don't know for sure. You know, it's hard to really pinpoint the statistics, but they say that Around the world, because of the work that's going on in China and Eastern Europe, that atheism is on the decline. But in the Western world, which is the United States of America, where we live in, atheism is on the rise. And so maybe 2% all around the world are atheists, 5% in the United States of America are. You know, and and, and when you think of us, though, you know, civilized, uh, educated, what you find is what Romans one twenty two says, professing to be wise, they became fools. I mean, God says it repeatedly. I believe it wholeheartedly. Only a fool would say there's no God. 
You know, of course, we know there's a God, you know, for many reasons. Uh, I wanted to share with you, we don't have a lot of time, but uh, two uh, main points, four sub points uh, to think about. And we could really be here all night, although I'm not an apologist. I'm not a Charlie Campbell. Maybe you can get one of his DVDs or read some books by Robbie Zacharias or something. But, you know, um, there's so much evidence, overwhelming evidence to prove the existence of God. And so a lot of times theologians will talk about these four things. Number one, general revelation. And number two, uh, special revelation. And so general revelation is open for all to see. Uh, The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. You know, that we can look up in the world. And I like what Warren Wiersbe says. We look up into the heavens. Uh, We look down into the earth. We look around in the world. We look in into the life and soul of who we are. We know. There's a God because of creation, because of conscience. There's this general revelation. And I mean, I, I could show you guys uh, my phone right here and, and, and ask you, do you think that happened by random chance? I mean, you wouldn't give it a gazillion years and say that that could happen by accident. Well, how much more so you? You know, you're so fearfully and wonderfully made. Beautiful people created in the image of God. I mean, your brain is a, is a gazillion times more complex than the computer system that we have here. And when you cut yourself, you fix yourself, you can procreate, you can love. I mean, you like arts and music and isn't it cool how God gave us taste buds, all those things. You know, it's so easily seen that there is a God because of the things that are made. It's not by accident, you know, and I've told you guys this before. To believe that this world that we live in happened by accident would be like saying there was an explosion in a junkyard and out comes a, a 747, you know, airplane, or there was an explosion in the print shop and out comes a dictionary. Absolutely not. How foolish to believe that there is no God. We know there's a God because of the general revelation of creation and conscience. But we also know there's a God because of the special revelation. And what that is, is the Bible and Jesus. The written word and the living word, they prove there is a God. All the prophecies in this book, the way that this book is so supernatural, it proves there's a God. But then when Christ came, when God came and did all the words and works that he did and he rose from the dead, there is not a shadow of a doubt that there is no God. But the skeptic, you know, the the fool, they say there is no God. The skeptic says, hey, first prove to me God's existence and then I'll believe. But God says there's enough evidence to believe. And if you believe, I'll prove myself to you. And that's exactly what happened to me when I got saved. You know, there was evidence. I knew I was a sinner. I needed a savior. I went forward, accepted Christ. And then, boom, he just came into my life. And he flooded my life and he just filled me with his presence. And then he began to answer prayers and miracles and words of wisdom and knowledge and tongues. And I mean, that's what happens. There is enough evidence, overwhelming evidence to prove there is a God. And once you believe, he proves himself to you. You know, the reason I know that there's a God is put all this together. Plus, I know him. I've met him. And so, you know, 
there's so much evidence, but what ends up happening is they suppress the truth. And the real reason why all these guys, at the end of the day, they believe there's no God is because they suppress the truth and they love the lies. Evangelist Billy Sunday, he used to say, sinners can't find God for the same reason a criminal avoids a policeman. He doesn't want to find one, right? You know, it's interesting. In the original text here in Psalm 14, I don't know if it's like this in your Bible, more than likely it is. Uh, the words, there is, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There is is in italics, and that means it's not there in the original Hebrew. And so literally what the fool says is no God. Just no God. It's because he loves his sin, right? And that's the real issue. You know, John Corson, he said, the person who claims to be an atheist or an agnostic does so not because of intellectual struggle, but because of rebellion. They don't want God to rule over him or her. You know, you look around, there are the positional atheists, the official atheists, but there's also what are called practical atheists. And these are those people out there, and sometimes they're even in the church, they say they believe, but they really don't believe. They're just professors, and they exhibit a lack of confidence in God and a lack of obedience to God. I think if David was on the run from Saul, this would definitely describe him uh, just accurately, you know. He, he said he believed in God, but he didn't really believe in God because he was fearful and he was sinful. He was fearful because he believed, well, that David's going to take over my crown. I'm afraid of this guy. He's anointed. He's a great leader. And so he started persecuting him. No, wait a minute. Time out, Saul. If you believed in God, then you have no reason to be insecure. Because God is the one that put you there. And God is the only one that can take you down. There is no reason to be afraid if you believe in God. People who are fearful are in one sense practical atheists. You guys, we have nothing to be afraid of. Because there is a God who loves us. And who's for us. And who's with us. And sees every tear we cry and he knows every thought we think. Don't be a practical atheist. You know, what they do is they, you know, they're, they're fearful and, and they're also sinful. And if you really believe in God, it, it won't be a matter of just words. It, it will be evident in your ways. It will be evident in your work. It will be evident in your walk. It'll be evident in your life, in your love. You know, because you know there's a God and, you know, in, in a good way, he's always watching you. And in a, in a very holy way, he's always watching you and he's listening to what you say and he's listening to how you say it. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And some will say it, you know, and they do it as, as you know, positional atheists, but I think a lot of times people do it as practical atheists. And what I think, when I think of our country, they say 5% are positional atheists. I'd probably say another 85% are practical atheists. And then there's just a small remnant 
in the church that really believe in God. And that's why this is so important for us to really search our heart. You know, the practical atheist says he believes, but he lives life as if God doesn't see his sin or hear his words or know his thoughts. And so the practical atheist, he just lives his own life. He does whatever he wants. He doesn't really believe in God. The practical atheist, he says he believes, but he doesn't really believe that God answers prayer. And so he doesn't really pray because he has said in his heart, there is no God. You know, when I was going through this, and I thank God, you know, he's given me so much grace. But when I was really thinking about this and just getting on my knees and praying and just knowing that God hears, it's just life changing. You know, I, I, I think we really have to search our hearts. I've told you guys a million times, and I know it's getting old, and please don't tune me out, but I'll say it again and again and again and again that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, right? Proverbs twenty-seven nineteen it says, as, as, as in water, face reflects face, so a man's heart reveals the man, see? I mean, do you really believe, you know, it's present in your heart, whether or not there's faith, you know, that's the way God sees. We need to search our hearts because that's what God searches. Remember in 1 Samuel sixteen seven, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his outward appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected or refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's always been a problem. That's why Jesus quoted from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, in Matthew 15, verse 8. He said, These people, they draw near to me with their lips, but they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so, you know, this is not us, you know, in, in the positional place, but let it not be descriptive of us in, in any place. You know, the wicked and, and the righteous, there's a great distinction between, you know, them, the ain'ts and the saints, right? And, and so in, in verse 1, you know, he goes on to describe this fool. The remainder of the verses describe the non-believer. That's anyone apart from God. Notice again in verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. That's what they are. They have done abominable works. This is what they do. And not just some of them. It says right there, all of them. There is none who does good. None. And that's pretty crazy. But, you know, I can hear someone say, oh, come on, Manny. You mean to tell me that there are no non-believers who do good? And I have to say, well, I'm not saying it. God's saying it. But the way that we understand it is, is, is a biblical definition of what good is. Now, typically, our definition of good is, is different. And according to our typical definition of good, it's true. Man does do good, you know. Thank God that our, our total depravity is not utter depravity. 
Thank God that every man is not as bad as he can possibly be. Some are. Thank God that not all men are equally bad. Some are better than others. But when you look at it, Wiersbe said that human depravity doesn't mean that all persons are as wicked as they can be. But the biblical definition of good and that none does good, the biblical definition has to do with God. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that the origin of our word good, it actually comes from God. It comes from that word God. And sometimes I'll spell it with a capital G, capital O, small O, and then capital D. You know, so you can see the word God in the word good. And when you understand that, then you realize that there are no men apart from those who are saved who can possibly do good, just like the Bible says. When God states that there are no non-believers who do good, he's saying they don't feed the homeless or, or tend to the fatherless or take care of the elderly or donate to charity for God. I mean, Bill Gates... He gave 11 million, but not for God. Warren Buffett gave 30 million, but not for God. That's not good because that doesn't impact things spiritually. You know, when you look at what God is saying, ultimately the non-believer doesn't give or live for God. It doesn't happen unless you're a child of God. I I don't know if you guys noticed there in verse 2, we read it. It says, um, the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men. And, and what that is in, in the Hebrew language is describing uh, those who don't know the Lord. There's a great distinction between the children of men and the children of God. And we're going to see that as we go through our text here, you know. I mean, you can only do good or, 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 or you know, eventually seek God if you're a child of God. And we can only become a child of God through the Son of God, Christ Jesus, right? In in John chapter 1, there's an interesting passage in verse 10 through 13. It says this about Jesus. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, not, not just ancestors of Abraham, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they're born again from above. So let me ask you a question tonight. Are you a child of God? Or you are just a child or a children of men? Have you given your life to Christ? Do you believe in your heart? You know, when you become a Christian, your life changes on the outside. It will be evident. There will be fruit. And there's an inner witness on the inside. If you're here tonight, and just in case, you know, you don't know for sure where you stand with the Lord, I want you to know that He loves you, that He brought you here tonight, and that He wants you to start a relationship with Him. All you have to do is believe. And I know it sounds so simple, but it's true, man. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You know, it's kind of like if I could say it this way, I know it sounds kind of mushy or corny maybe, but it's like God saying, will you marry me? Even the guys, yeah. (laughs) Have you ever been proposed to, the girls here? 
You remember that day? Guys, any guys here have been proposed to? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I never have. You know, I did propose to my wife and then she had to make a choice. Yes, I'll marry you. Thank God she said yes. Imagine how hard it would be if someone says no. That would be tough. But I'm sure it's happened, right? And, and with the Lord, it happens, unfortunately, all the time. There's a lot of people who say, no, I don't want you. I don't want to marry you. I don't want to give my life to you. I know you love me, but I don't want to love you back. See, that's all this is, you guys, is that we're sinners and we need a Savior. And Jesus died on a cross, rose again. Come, follow him. Not just a religion, a relationship. Follow him. And when you choose to do that, then you become a child of God. You see, that's what we see here. It's so beautiful. You know, the Lord here, he gives a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. And in this psalm right here, he's warning the wicked. He's going to warn them, those that don't know the Lord. But he's also, we're going to see at the end of the day, he's encouraging the righteous. Look what we read in, next in verse 4. It says, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? Uh, the NLT says it this way, Will those who do evil never learn? They eat up my people like bread and wouldn't think of praying to the Lord. You know, and, and so... There's something about this whole thing. There's something about life that we kind of got to, we want justice, right? And, and, and at the same time, I think that if you're here, and I don't think there's anybody here, but if you're here and you, and you eat people, you beat people, you mistreat people, God's warning you, you better not do it. Don't do it to your kids. Don't do it to anybody. Don't disrespect anybody because they are created in the image of God. God sees when people are being mistreated. And if I were you, I would fear God. Because this psalm is, about, is warning people about mistreating His people. Those kids, they're not your kids. They're just loners. They're God's kids. And right here, there's a, there's a warning. He's like, man, aren't they ever going to learn? The ones that eat up my people like bread, the ones that, you know, they wouldn't even think of praying. Uh, uh, the, the wicked, they're warned, but they just continue to oppress the people. And, and the reason they do that is because if there's no God, then why not? Right? If there's no God, then there's no real right or wrong, Right? I mean, if we believe that we came from animals, it shouldn't surprise us if we act like animals. And we see animals there in the animal kingdom. There's no ethics in the animal kingdom. You know, you might have a you know, cultural relativism here as a society, but there are no universal absolutes when there's no God. And what that means is right and wrong are determined by the popular opinion of the culture. And so if more people say that it's okay to mate with an animal, then go ahead. If more people say that it's okay for an old guy to be with a little girl, 
then who's to say it's wrong if there's no God, no absolute? Eventually, that's where our country is headed unless God comes in. It's absolutely perverse. You know, not too long ago, I met with a man and, I, and I'm trying to, to reach this guy and he's an atheist. And so we were eating and I was just tripping out on this guy. I was absolutely appalled to hear him say that he thought rape was all right. Because he said it's the propagation of society. And, and without God, I mean, it's just up in the air, right? I mean, if there's no God, then life is not sacred. Society begins to lose the sanctity of human life, abortion, euthanasia. Before you know it, you kill at will because there's no God. You end up really, ultimately, it leads to the heart of Hitler when there's no God, right? I mean, the physically and mentally handicapped in his they were viewed as useless to society, a threat to the Aryan genetic purity and ultimately unworthy of life. And so there in World War II, individuals who were physically handicapped or mentally ill were murdered in what the Nazis called the T4 or euthanasia program. And they killed 90,000 people because in their heart, they said, there's no God. It's crazy. You know, these guys right here, they were mistreating God's people. God was trying to warn them, but at the same time, God was trying to comfort those who were being mistreated. And so we read next in verse 5, it says, there they are in great fear. And, and you know who that is? That's a non-believer. There they are in great fear. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. It's kind of like if you're being mistreated, unfair, you know, I don't know what life is going to throw your way. What David is trying to do is write this psalm to tell you, you can rejoice. One thing that, that I, the Lord has really been ministering to me lately is that he's going to save me. He will always save me. He will always take care of me. I can rejoice even through the hard times. It's all part of his plan. He allows evil sometimes, but it's intended for good. And I may be mistreated like a Joseph who's thrown in prison. And there he is for 13 years, not really understanding what was going on. And all along, God was moving him to exactly where he needed to be. There's Christ nailed to a cross. Doesn't look good, but he's redeeming the world. We are God's people. We are His. We are the righteous. We are saved. And that's what this psalm is saying. We can therefore rejoice. You know, the non-believer, man, they, they should be afraid. When, when, when they're dealt with by God, they're standing there in fear. And it might be on this side of time. It might be on the other side of time. 
You know, the, the people who perished in Noah's day or the Egyptian of Moses' day, the Assyrians of Isaiah's day and Daniel's day, there was Nebuchadnezzar who was humbled by God or Belshazzar whose time was up. And it might be, again, the wicked person experiencing God's intervention on this side of time or it might be when they're dead and delivered up and standing before God who's seated there on the great white throne and he's judging them for all the things that they did and the injustices that they performed towards God's people make no mistake about it and you guys know this huh eventually everyone will be a believer huh (laughs) eventually for some however it will be too late right You know, I was reading a story about a Russian cosmonaut who sarcastically said that while he was in space, he looked carefully and couldn't see God. To which someone replied, well, you should open the door to the space capsule and you would have saw him, you know. Because one day we will stand before God and give an account. We've got to get ready for that day. You know, they deny God, they defy God, they eat, beat, and mistreat God's people. And one day God will deal with them. We should never mistreat any of God's people, anyone who's created in the image of God. Never. God loves that person. Believer, non-believer, God loves them. And you should too. You know, when I think of this story, I think of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. You guys remember the, the poor Lazarus? He was a beggar and he would sit there at the gate of the rich man and the rich man was dressed in nice threads and he had good food and you know, all the poor man wanted was just to eat some of the crumbs from, that fell from the table, but the rich man never gave him any food. He never helped him. He never had a heart. And then one day they died. The rich man and, and Lazarus. And the Bible says in Luke sixteen twenty four through 25, Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And that's just a holding tank. One day, Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. We'll read in in verse 6 again. I like the way the New Living Translation says it. The wicked frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord will protect his people. And then in closing, in verse 7, it says, Oh, that the, the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. You know what verse 7 is? It's the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament prayer over in the book of Revelation 22, verse 20, where John said, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. 
That's what this is right here. This is what David is saying. I don't think David is saying, let me sit on my throne. No, what David is saying is, Lord, you come and you sit on your throne. Lord, come and make all the wrongs right. Come and let sickness and sin and Satan and death, let it all die. That's what he's saying right there in that last verse. And again, it can refer to temporal deliverance on planet Earth. Uh, We know that for David, eventually he was vindicated from the sufferings experienced at the hands of Saul. You know, but ultimately it speaks of eternity. It speaks of of our home in heaven. And we can pray this prayer, you know. We can pray, Lord, you know, come. Uh, We can pray, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and and Israel be glad. You know, and I think it's kind of cool the way that it ends right here. And you, you might wonder, how many of you here... You wonder, why does God sometimes call his people Jacob? And why does he sometimes call them Israel? And he's done it. He does it over and over again, you know? Because, you know, he was named Jacob, and then God changed his name. It was like a formal changing of his name. In Genesis 32, when they're wrestling, you should no longer be called, you know, Jacob. Now you're Israel. And you guys know what Jacob means, right? It's supplanter, heel catcher, conniver, manipulator, sinner. In Israel, it means governed by God. Why is it that God sometimes calls him Jacob and sometimes calls him Israel? And I think you guys know why, huh? Because sometimes we're Jacobs (laughs) and sometimes we're Israels. Sometimes we blow it and, and every once in a while we do pretty good. But you know what's so cool? is the blood of Jesus Christ washes away our sins. And when you look at this psalm, what you find is that there are only really, at the end of the day, two types of people. There are the fools and there are the forgiven. And when you give your life to Christ, and I'm not talking about a religion, I'm talking about a relationship. I'm not talking about your brain. I'm talking about your heart. When you choose to follow Christ, then you are forgiven. Isn't that cool? So don't be fooled, okay?